Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Thursday, November the 12th. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Jan Fran. Hey, Jan. Hello, Tom. How are you going? Yeah, very well. In today's briefing, part two of our look at the Pfizer vaccine. That's right. We're going to find out how experts around the world are reacting, and we're going to take a look at some of the challenges that it might take to work out who gets this vaccine first. Yeah, a lot of vulnerable people. We'll get to that in a moment. First, here are the big news of the day, and it actually starts with news about this vaccine. Indeed it does. Millions of Australians could receive a COVID vaccine in just over 100 days. We are on track to deliver vaccines uh, to Australians commencing in March of 2021. So let me work this out. It's 109 (laughs) days until March. I mean, who's counting, you know? (laughs) Yeah, that was the health minister, Greg Hunt, speaking after this week's news that the Pfizer vaccine has proved 90% effective in stage three trials. Yeah, the head of the Therapeutic Goods Administration, Dr. John Skerritt, says that they should determine whether that vaccine and possibly others are safe shortly after Christmas. All going well, but by, say, the end of January, we'll be in a position to be able to give the first couple of vaccines an approval. Yeah, so Skerritt said the first couple of vaccines there because there are more than 100 vaccines being developed across the world. Australia's got deals to import or produce four of them, and the federal government's expecting that at least one other vaccine will be available by March. Yeah, and distribution's an interesting one as well. Eskies to the rescue here because (laughs) (laughs) Eskies, they rescue most things, don't they? But vaccines need to actually be refrigerated at minus 70 degrees And they will actually be transported to Australia in what is being called very sophisticated eskies and cooled by dry ice. They also last 14 days. So I guess the good news is that they can be distributed to GP clinics where people get access to them. Do you know they call eskies chilli bins in New Zealand? I think that's brilliant. I did know that. (laughs) Very sophisticated chilli bins. (laughs) Um, National Cabinet will meet tomorrow to work out how it's going to be rolled out and exactly who's going to be first in line for the first 5 million doses. And we'll talk more about that in our briefing topic in just a moment. Meanwhile, the US's top doctor, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, has told ABC's 7.30 that we are the envy of the world. Australia is an example of a very successful result from a lockdown. They locked down for a period of time. They got down to zero. It's much easier to identify, isolate and contact trace when you start off with virtually no infections in your population. Yeah, he did also say, though, that hard lockdowns weren't always the answer and that businesses, small and large, can still stay open. So it's interesting how this will play out in the United States with an incoming Biden administration. Um, The numbers of infections in that country just keep climbing. They hit a pretty grim record, 200,000 infections in just 24 hours. I don't know how they're going to get those numbers down without locking down to some extent. Yeah, thankfully the death numbers are nowhere near as high as they were at the peak um, back in April. Um, But yes, a tough situation. Imagine being Anthony Fauci. It might be easier without the president criticising you when you're doing a job, though. Yes, or Steve Bannon calling for your beheading online. And staying in the United States, the US President Donald Trump has made his first formal public appearance since election defeat. Yep, him and his wife Melania Trump uh, marked Veterans Day by laying a wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier in the Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia. He hasn't given any speeches or spoken to the media and he hasn't held an official appearance at all since Joe Biden won the presidential election last week. Just... um, via Twitter, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's very uncharacteristic because he talks to the media all the time. You'll see him usually standing in front of a helicopter. That's a deliberate strategy. Uh, Hasn't done that in a while. 
Speaking, though, of President-elect Joe Biden, he is continuing to prepare to take office in January, um, but the Trump campaign still refuses to concede defeat. I just think it's an embarrassment, quite frankly. I think it will not help the president's legacy. I'm confident that uh, the fact that they're not willing to acknowledge we won at this point is uh, not of much consequence in our planning. Yeah, the Trump camp is still working to block a peaceful transition for Biden, including telling federal agencies to continue preparing Trump's February budget. Um, That's weeks after Biden's meant to start actually being the president. Mm. Um, Here's what Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said. There will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. All right, we're, we're ready. The, the world is watching what's taking place. I'm not sure what that means. Uh, <laughs> it's a weird thing to say, isn't it? Do you know what this feels like? Have you seen that movie Alien where Sigourney Weaver's walking around with the guns mm. and we're just not sure where the alien's going to pop out from and it's just <laughs> super tense? I know it's not a gracious reading of the situation, but I'm tense about it. Mm. Meanwhile, a couple of other developments overnight. The swing state of Georgia, which Biden won by around 14,000 votes, has confirmed all votes will be recounted by hand. Um, While the state of Alaska has been called for Trump, I think we all knew that that was going to happen. However, that win still only gives him 217 votes in the Electoral College, so not anywhere near the 270 required, which Biden already has. And New South Wales has levelled the state of origin, dominating Queensland in the second game last night. And the crowd breaks into a chant as New South Wales take the 2020 state of origin series to a decider yet again. Yes, after a game one wipeout, the Blues managed to send the series to a decider with a 34-10 victory in front of 36,000 people at ANZ Stadium. And there was a bit of biff as well, actually. Oh. Wouldn't quite call it a brawl, would you? No, not quite a brawl, but yeah, you know, a bit of the old school origin, which is very bad and should never happen and two players got sent off in the same Okay, I like how you've had to explain that to me because I'm looking at you like, hang on, is this bad? Is this good? What are we talking about here? Can't really say. Um, game three will be next Wednesday night at Suncorp Stadium. So um, a pretty interesting decider and I guess people will be asking what sort of text messages will be flying around between the, <laughs> the New South Wales and the Queensland Premier. Yeah, you'll Queenslander. Re- you'll remember that Anastasia Palaszczuk did brag a little bit to Gladys Berejiklian at the last uh, State of Origin game, which Queensland won, so... Didn't help the border dispute at all, I don't think. No. All right, in a moment, part two of our look at the Pfizer vaccine and its challenging rollout. briefing topic, we're going to learn how the Pfizer vaccine changes and hopefully speeds up our path back to normal life. Fingers and toes all crossed. 100%. Yeah, this follows from yesterday's deep dive on the exciting Pfizer COVID vaccine announcement. One of the biggest medical breakthroughs in the past 100 years. A vaccine has shown a 90% efficacy rate. Saying that in this interim look, the vaccine showed to be more than 90% effective. Yes, so since the announcement, we have learnt some pretty important things about the vaccine. I guess the main takeout is that the reaction from experts around the world has so far been very positive. Yeah, this is what Dr. Fauci, um, Anthony Fauci, the lead expert advising the US government had to say. The bottom line is, as a vaccine, it's more than 90% effective, which is extraordinary and will play a major role in what the outcome of this is going to be. That's the immediate good news. 
The other good news, that is not the only company that has it. There's another company, Moderna, which has a, a vaccine very similar, if not identical to this. Their results will be coming out soon. So it's likely that we're going to have more than one vaccine that's effective. We would be giving vaccine to people very likely before the end of this year. I mean, that's huge. The end of this year is yeah. looming. The, you know, we've only got a few weeks left really before the end of the year. In the UK, an Oxford professor, Sir John Bell, who's on the British government's vaccine task force, had this to say. Do we now say with confidence that life should be returning to normal by spring? Yes, yes, yes. I'm, I'm probably the first guy to say that, but I do. I, I will say that with some confidence. Yes, yes, yes. That's unequivocal. Yeah. <laughs> that is yes. So we're rolling out the good news here. Um, we will get to some of the detail and I guess the tricky parts of this. Yeah, it is going to be hard to distribute because it needs super cold storage, so around minus 80 degrees. So you'll need to make a big investment in that cold supply chain. There's also a lot that we actually don't know from the trial. You know, we don't know whether it stops the infection or just the disease, and we don't really know how long the immunity lasts either. And also, while the vaccine is one of the four that the Australian government did a deal on, um, we have put more eggs in the Oxford uni vaccine, which is already in production here in Australia as of this week. Um, But our deal with Pfizer is an import deal because we don't actually have the capability to manufacture this mRNA type of vaccine here. Yeah, so we have an agreement to get enough for 5 million people here in Australia, two doses each, through the course of next year. So, you know, it'd be great if we're able to kind of ramp up that order. Can we have some more, please? Can we have... What's our population? 25 million. 25 million, please, yeah. (laughs) The questions about the rollout will be complicated as well. Who gets it and how that, you know, changes our lives, particularly travel. So that's what we're going to get into with Dr. Mary Louise McClaws. Um, She's an epidemiologist from New South Wales Uni who's been part of a World Health Organization's COVID advisory panel. Yeah, Mary Louise, thanks for joining us. Um, Looking ahead to when the rollout begins, uh, how many people would have to be vaccinated before you can sort of start to pull back on measures like lockdowns and travel restrictions? So does, does everyone have to have it before you can do that? Or can we do that as soon as the vulnerable people get the vaccine? Well, it's going to take quite some time. Imagine that Australians get vaccinated and a lot of Australians get vaccinated. I mean, we can't do 100% straight off. We're going to have to slowly roll this out. And then imagine Australia has 90% of all of its population vaccinated. And that's a real um, hope uh, that we all take up a vaccine. When we travel and we go somewhere, our destination, they may not have a very high uptake. Mm. And then imagine you're one of that proportion of, say, 10, 20, 30, 40, or even 50% of the recipients that never elicit a enduring or a protective response. You're now in a high-level epidemic um, pattern, and you may be at risk. So for quite some time, travellers who have been a recipient of a good vaccine will still need to be very, very careful because we don't know whether they will be a small or large proportion of the recipients who will never elicit a response. And then when they go to another country, 
that have also been vaccinated, they too have a level of um, population that are never going to be uh, protected for one reason or another. So it's not a magic um, a magic vaccine. It's not a magic bullet. Mm. Not for quite some time before we find out exactly how our global population uh, respond because we're all so interconnected that globally we need a high level of uptake and a high level of protection. Yeah, well, I mean, on that point, do you believe that the response to this will be a coordinated global response or is this something that individual countries are going to have to implement on their own terms? (laughs) WHO, through a group called COVAX Allocation Framework, uh, want to roll out for those countries that can't afford to buy additional vaccine, a a 3% of their population initially to cover all of their healthcare workers, and that hopefully is a global um, rollout, and then increase that further to 20%. Mm-hmm. and then increase that further to an additional 20%. Okay, so then within countries, how we decide who who's going to get it first? We know that it's more vulnerable people, but what does that actually mean? It's a great question and it's a very difficult question. So I've looked at the numbers and I'm not part of the group that decides who to get it. That's at the national level, at the prime minister and national level. But I've just looked at the numbers of how this can be done. And I'm very grateful that our um, government is buying additional amount of vaccine to be rolled out because the initial group of that 3% of population is difficult for us because if we just looked at doctors, nurses, allied healthcare workers, that's about 4%. Mm. We also have uh, wardsmen, clerks, environmental cleaners, And I've estimated, but it's only estimated about a half a million of those. Then we have residential aged care staff that are not just the care staff, but all the staff in residential facilities. Then the next group, the high risk adults. However, we don't know whether the vaccine will work in the elderly. The elderly receive a very specific vaccine for flu with an adjuvant, which basically kickstarts the elderly from 60 years of age and over. Right. And then what about those that have a, what we call a comorbidity, a health issue? We also want to cover those that have had COVID and survived. It doesn't mean that their antibodies will protect them because scientists have found antibodies start waning at 148 days. Imagine not covering those that are that hop into uh, trucks every day, that hop out into the field and grow our food. So food transporters and food growers and other essential products are important and I've only guesstimated how many they are. We've got a, another group who uh, I believe are high risk of acquiring COVID and transmitting it, and they are our casualised workforce because they're at high risk of many jobs and therefore seeing many people and potentially transmitting it. And then we've got 
0.5% of the population who are the police and the defence force. I just want to try mm. and understand, I guess, how this vaccine is going to affect our day-to-day lives. And of course, we don't know that it's going to happen. I want to preface, but let's just say it does. What does that then do to social distancing? Will we still have to do that or can we live completely normally like we did before? We can't live completely normally. No, not for a very long time. Because a WHO have a target product profile, a TPP, and that includes wishing that a vaccine candidate has an effective uh, level of at least uh, 70%, meaning that when let's say 100 people are vaccinated, that 70% of them will be uh, covered and are immune. But there there may be 30% of those 100 people that are vaccinated uh, that just never elicit an immune response. But we don't know who those 30% of people will be. So, we so we've got to, to be on our guard with social exactly. distancing. We can't let that it, just go to the wayside. Exactly. Yep, I understand. Hey, what about in terms of um, proof? Yep. Do you think we have to carry around proof that we've been vaccinated? Like now we go into shops or restaurants, we have to sign in, we have to say, you know, we don't have a temperature, we have to declare all this stuff about ourselves. If a vaccine comes through, do you think we'll have to declare whether or not we've been vaccinated? Because I'm expecting the government to still expect us to do social distancing, testing, isolating mask use in certain conditions, they won't be asking for a proof of vaccination because of that proportion of people who need those that were vaccinated and elicited an immune response to still care for each other. But there may be countries where you want to go to that require a proof of vaccination because they've worked very hard to keep their numbers down and they don't want any cases coming in and seeding their uh, population with COVID. So I can see a proof of vaccination uh, being required by some countries, yes. And that happens in a lot of cases for other diseases um, at this point as well. Uh, all right, Correct. well, that's all going to be very interesting to see how it does play out. Thanks so much for being with yeah, us thank this you. morning. It's a pleasure. Stay safe. That was Mary Louise McLaws, epidemiologist uh, working on the WHO Emergencies Programs Advisory Panel. Jan, a few standout things there, just how hard it is determining who gets it first? It's Sophie's choice, isn't it? You think vulnerable population, it's only going to be a small proportion of the overall population, surely just health workers and the sick. But actually, when you think about it, quite a substantial amount of our population can be termed vulnerable. And how do you decide who gets the vaccine? We're all a bit vulnerable sometimes, aren't we? We are all a bit vulnerable. Luckily, you know, I hope that we've got people in those decision-making positions that um, that know what they're doing. And travel really hard internationally because each country will have different levels of, of vaccination. So Yeah, and I know really you helpful. care deeply about that because you just want to go skiing in Japan next year. Just <laughs> tell the people the truth. They know. They know. They're hearing it all the time. Too much. That's it for today. Tomorrow, Jan, a topic very close to your heart. Distraction. Oh, I wish you wouldn't tell people, but I am very distracted. Oh, we all are. We're going to find out what it is, why we're so distracted, and what we can do about it. And if we can just blame technology or if it's it's a deeper psychological thing. You'll have to tune in to find out. A Podcast One production.